if any part of you feels like you've stalled out, hit the skids, can't really find your way through the fog right now, then this episode is definitely for you. I'm joined this week by author of Why Bother, Jennifer Loudon. We go deep together about how to get your bother on when you're not really sure why to bother anymore or when you really do care about something and you're not quite sure what to do with that either. I know you're going to learn a lot and really enjoy this episode. Let's get started. Take a seat at the table next to me, Robin Ivey, and some of today's most meaningful thought leaders, mentors, and spiritual guides, and even some people like you and I, as we discuss their extraordinary lives and adventures in being human. Enjoy this week's episode. So welcome, everybody. Today, I'm so excited to interview Jennifer Loudon. She is a best-selling author. She's an amazing human being. She has written so many things over the years that have comforted me, including her women's comfort book. She has run retreats for women all over the world and is a powerful leader in helping women emerge back into better ways of being. So thank you for being here, Jen. Gosh, I love that introduction. Send that to me. That's a really good way for me to think about myself. Emerge into better ways of being. That is fantastic. Thank you. Well, I have to tell you, I mean, I was like, where, I don't know what I'm going to do in an hour because (laughs) I have like almost all the pages marked. (laughs) It is one of those books, you know, I tried to distill. I'm in this phase of my life at 58 where I, maybe you're in the same place. I mean, you're younger than I am, but where there's fewer, can I curse on this or not? Yes, absolutely. Okay. There's fewer fucks to give and, and less time. For, and, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, yeah. right. Or, or phrase. And, and I wanted to just distill things, you know, I just doesn't, I doesn't feel like we have to keep going around the block. <laughs> we don't have time. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder, I mean, even about things, this has nothing to do with any, but even things about birth, I'm like, there's 7 billion people on the planet. How come every woman hasn't attended a birth? Right. Like there's, there's a sort of certain sort of like evolutionary things that I feel like, haven't we been alive long enough that someone should have said something about this particular thing? Like, Mm -hmm. like, I'm glad that at 58, you're like, maybe I can talk about why to bother. Yeah. I think people have been wondering about it for probably a really long time. Yeah. And why, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday. It came up with a client, uh, a, a, co- a coaching writing client. And, you know, why bother to write? Why bother to do anything creative comes up a lot for people in all stages of a project, all stages of a career, all stages of a business. And it's so fascinating when you point it out because we don't we don't hear it. We don't notice it. We just ask it as a rhetorical question and we believe it. And I was thinking again this morning after that conversation yesterday, how important it is to just get this into our heads, that this is normal and natural, but we have to bring our curiosity to bear on it because we so often just shut down right at that place. And it's just our brains doing their thing, sure. you know, and our culture doing its thing, whatever. Well, and I should say, so the book is called Why Bother? Discover the Desire for What's Next. And I, I will honestly say, like, I have, I'm not a big reader. My ADD and reading usually don't like each other very well. Yeah. So I'm kind of an audible person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, like, I really mean it when I say I dog-eared this book, because um, I know you didn't write it knowing we were about to approach a pandemic. <laughs> but no. I'm sure glad you did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wild timing, huh? 
Um, and I did an Audible book. I did. I read. I read yeah. the book for Audible. And that but was you, really yours, fun. yours was the kind that I have to get both. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Your your book lives in the category that that where like I need because when it has some like things that I gotta remember, like the mm-hmm. how to. When there's a map or a strategy, I need the hard one, but I also right. gotta hear it. So. Yeah. And I love even if you could even speak to like when I got the book thinking of like, well, does she mean like, why bother or like, why bother? Both. You know? Right. Both. And so I was like, oh, good. A both and. Right. Because there's both sides. We first we have to notice that we're in the why bother. Why bother to make my marriage better? She he is never going to change. Why bother to I only got five more years before I can retire. Why don't I just stay in the same job, even though I'm thinking of my girlfriend right now, who is bothering to look for a different job at this last stage of her career because she's so underutilized. And so that those kind of why bothers, I'm not saying they're always that you always have, yes, I should do something different, but you should ask because otherwise without asking, your life force starts to drain away. And then why bother will bunk up your whole life. So it could start in your job or it could start in your marriage and then it could go into your health and your creativity and your friendships and your community or not. But yeah, so it's both. It's like, why bother? Oh, because I think there's no reason to bother. What was so what the, do I want what, to bother about? What was the impetus for this? Like, where did... I mean, yeah. if you read the book, that's, you know, it, it comes out, but I feel like for the listeners, like mm-hmm. what, w- what was your, what was the driver that, that birthed this out of you? Well, it was a lot of failure. So I had a lot of success early on. And then I hit about an 11 year period where I only wrote functionally two books during that time. And I'd written a book about every two or three years before that. And I wanted to, I mean, there's, there's a couple different things that came out of which, of course, you never know this until you look back. Right. And that's so important to say, because when we talk in these interviews, it makes us sound like we're also like, I'm just going all together. I had all my dots connected ahead of time. Exactly. And the dots are totally only connected after the fact. You're like, Oh, holy shit. Look at that. Oh my God. So I didn't, I was never comfortable being a personal growth person. I sort of stumbled into it and then was successful. My books were successful and I loved the research, but I, and I loved making, my, my thing in life has always been, how do I help women get out of their own way? And and, and not like anybody, but especially women, I don't care as much about men, but a few times I'll do it with men, but like with women, I'm just like, it just lights me up. But it, it came attached to so much baggage with the personal growth industry. And I was exposed as, as many people are to some of the dark side of it. And so I would, and I also hated being somebody who was supposed to have answers. I don't really believe in answers. I believe in good questions. I believe in good conversations. I believe in iteration. I believe in curiosity, but answers, man. And you, when you go on a book tour, when you do television and radio, especially in the old days, what's your sound bites? And it would make me feel kind of like a prostitute. Not that there's anything wrong with being a prostitute, but in a way that didn't feel good to me. And so all of that churned around in me and I wanted to, I wanted to write something different. So I spent a lot of years trying to write fiction because I'd come out of screenwriting originally, but I kept not sticking to it. I kept not doing the rewrites. Then I tried to write, then I went through a really long, dark period in my life, a deep why bother period, included my dad dying, it included a divorce, it included 
I used to say falling in love too soon with my current husband, but I don't say that anymore. Um, and my daughter struggling and lots and lots of uh, professional disappointments. And out of that came a memoir. So I spent four years trying to write a memoir because someone told me this is a really great story and I believe them. And then the memoir failed. It failed to work as a, a work of, of literature. But when I looked back at what I had written, I saw the path of my life and that became this book, if that makes sense. So it was wow. a lot of meandering to find my way, a lot of suffering. And then when I looked at that memoir that didn't work as a memoir, but I'm like, oh, look at all the moments in my life when I went through a transition. And instead of continuing to ask, what do I really desire? I went back to what was familiar. And so tricky in the like, I find for myself in the question of like, what do I desire? Um, I don't always expect the Pandora's box that that comes with. That's so true. And right? the ambivalence it, too. Yeah, I really, I, I was just saying to um, Susan Piver the other day, <laughs> I was just saying to her, I was like, when I was younger, I, I really thought that growth was a forward trajectory, like a road trip. Like, oh, I'm going to from Boston to San Diego. Like I'm going to get in the car and I'm just going to make forward projection until I'm there, right? Like effort forward towards destination growth. And then I started to realize like that's at least my life has not, that has not proven to be the way my growth has operated. Mine has been more like difficult thing, great thing. And then being able to hold the space for those, those things that seem in contradiction or in paradox or in, uh, in opposition where it's really how to hold both and, both and, both and at like further distances, like kettlebells further out, right? Like, oh, by the time you're middle-aged, like if you do the work, like there's some strength at the both end. And that feels like real expansion instead of just forward growth towards, you know? That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I think that was part of what I discovered. And, and that desire doesn't care whether you get it right. And desire doesn't care if everybody applauds you or thinks you're important or special. Desire says, you know, you're interested in this. Let's follow this. Let's come alive with it. And then you may be interested in so many things that you have to kind of wade through and choose. And the choosing also can bring you alive. How much do you think being a, an, an artist or a creative has impacted your personal development? Because I think that creative people or people who self-identify as artists come to the table with a curiosity and a wonder that's built and bred of our creative spirit that that lives in an interesting intersection with self-development I think yeah for me it's definitely been a huge motivator but I also have to so it's it's incredibly important but it's also been something I fight because there's a strong part of me that wants to check things off my list, that wants to accomplish things, that wants to put things in a box. So when you say yes, and it's like there's, I had my producer on my podcast yesterday say, oh my God, you're just such a curious interviewer. You're so curious. It's fascinating. I'm like, that's true. And I'm also thinking about when is this over so I can check, so I can <laughs> record the intro and the outro and, and it'll be over and it'll be done and I can check it off, right? So it's, it's holding both of those and allowing myself more time to create, not for a product, not for an audience, because I've been so driven with my creativity and that can be really deadening. 
Very deadening. I've spent the past um, 20 years as a commercial photographer. I'm a coach um, as well. But in that span of really, really choosing, choosing to live my life and create a profession and a mortgage payment, frankly, out of my art, um, that really has a way of changing the relationship to the Absolutely. Art. Yeah. I've created many mortgage payments. Out of <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And and ironically, I think in college education. That's right. <laughs> a girl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and thinking about how much that informs what our own innate creativity means and how that matters to our why bother. Because I think as creative people, uh, our why bother involves kind of that murky, it involves the murkiness and the nature of creation, right? Of like being able to be with the parts that are less uh clear or black and white or have a form or you know it's it's a lot murkier in that in that space and also if this isn't too diving too deep into the business creative part but it's also learning and always sort of balancing and just close my eyes y'all to this like wow okay I have to make a living which means I have to repeat stuff I have to do stuff more than once and I, and then that how that can kill me and drain me and developing systems so achingly slowly over 30 years of being in business for myself of going okay yeah you got to design things that you can do over and over again or you're never going to make enough money to pay that mortgage because I'm always off to the races to create something new that's it well and I think um I have more ideas mm-hmm but this, I feel like once upon a time, this was actually easier because culture slowed me down, right? Like if I had an idea for something in 1989, it meant I needed to make a flyer and I needed to go out on a Saturday and hang it up on a lot With of- With the little clothes. things on the bottom that you can pull off. Look, <laughs> I, was, phone number. <laughs> I, I was a punk rock kid and like in our hardcore scene, like there were a lot of like zines, you know, like we uh-huh. made a lot of, there was a lot of art to be made and a lot of zines and a lot of stickers to hang up places and a lot of shows to announce and just- but it felt like it gave the audience had time to keep up with that. And now if I have an idea, I'm like, well, maybe I'm going to host a webinar. Maybe I'm going to launch a class. Maybe I'm going to launch a thing. It bombards. It, there's a bombardment of, of that in our, uh, mm-hmm. in how we receive information and stuff now in a way that feels like it impacts how much of my great ideas I want to put out in the world because of the marketing and the doing and the creating and the it's selling. It's true. Of, you know, it's true. It's interesting. There, there's also, there's been some choices I've been making lately where I'm like, I'm not going to market that as much, or I'm not going to like, I'm just going to do this. And of course I'm going to tell people because I, I, you have to, your creative work to me is not finished if you don't tell someone, but the level of like, I've got to talk about it all the time. Or, you know, even like with the white bother book, it's been out a year now. I spent a year promoting the book. And when the book anniversary came around, we had a book anniversary party. And then I went, I love you so much. Go out in the world. If you need something from me, ask. <laughs> but I have to move on now, you know, in, in my main thing of like, oh, look at this, look at this. There's just, there is a cost to it. Hmm. It's and, almost and, like raising children, right? It's like there is, yes. I mean, every stage is really amazing. And there's grief and joy to the moving on to the next thing, right? Like when they're yeah. infants, right? Because everything is like, I'm sure this was amazing to write. And I'm sure being in the energy of having to repeat the story and repeat the thing is really a different energy to be with for a year than the creating Mm -hmm. of the thing. 
Mm -hmm. Although I do find that you can be present to talking about the same things and discover something new in it. Yeah. If you're not, if you're actually here. Thank goodness. Yes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's very, these kind of conversations are not those soundbite conversations at all. So very different. Yeah. You just don't, that doesn't happen a lot anymore. Is there, you know, I found this to be like a pretty beautiful roadmap, you know, because I think I I tend to live in this space of like, I want the deep wisdom, but I also want some of the practical, Sure. right? Like Ram Dass is my hero. Like I listen to him, like I just listen to him all the time, talk to him all the time when I'm not listening to him. And uh, sometimes I'm like, but I needed a little practical, like, <laughs> but I don't know what to do. You know, like I want a little, and I love that you really broke this down into this section, into a map. So can you speak to that in a way that still feels en- en- enlivening to you? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> and Ram Dass was how I started doing yoga and meditation when I was about 12. Oh, I discovered just... Be Here Now. My sister had a copy. She's older oh. than I am. And I got it down off her shelf and I would go in her bedroom. She had moved away to college and I would do yoga on her uh, shag carpet (laughs) and try to like understand the poses, you know, when you're reading them out of a book. uh, This would have been what, like 70, early 70s. Uh, So for me, the practical part, I feel like it's, we have to have practices. And we have to find practices that work for us because our brain is not interested in evolution. Our brain is not interested in living our best life. Our brain loves the question, why bother? Because it's like, thank you. I don't need to spend any resources on bothering. I'll just go watch Netflix. That's much better use of my resources. um, So I love giving people practices and and then there's, and the practices in the book are things that I've used or taught for, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And was there one in particular that dropped? Oh, that there on? were, well, the, or one that you've used since that you remember? <laughs> well, I laugh because I feel like so much of my, so much of my own personal development has come through understanding what it means to be seen or just that mm-hmm. arena of being seen, right? Because mm-hmm. for me, the, the idea of being seen is really what, what, where the overlap between photography, personal development, spirituality, and coaching kind of all merge because, right. Because in, in taking portraits of people um, and, and asking people to be willing to be seen, there's no way to have that experience without understanding vulnerability. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's no part about understanding that about compassion and empathy and what it means to be present, because you can't be with someone who's anxious about being seen, even if it's just for a photograph, be true if at a doctor's office, fill in the blank where there's a certain level of mindfulness and presence involved in meeting people where they're at, even if just a photograph. So I loved it. Like your book ends with where like the work of my life has sort of lived. And I'm like, you do, it's all about like, it does it because leadership is exposure and being seen as our gifts, like our gifts of our own lead that has to be out there in the world, which is why, like, I feel like the whole book is like, this is why it's terrifying to be seen. Mm -hmm. This is why it's hard to be seen. This is why, this is why our culture doesn't let us be seen. This is why we don't feel like we're enough. And then at the end, it's like this beautiful invitation to, to, to do this and go out in the world and spread your wings and, uh. Yeah, because with, without being seen, 
which is the last of the six sort of stages that I lead people through in the book. And it's interesting because it's the shortest chapter because I I think I'm still learning this even after 30 years of being seen. Without it, I don't think, I think we fall back into why bother. I think there's a way that our human brains and hearts need to be in community, whether it's a community of two or a community of 10,000 or, and I especially see that women have a really hard time being seen. And then I was watching what happened to Naomi Osaka, the tennis player this past week. She refused to do the, um, right after you play in a major tournament, you have to be available per contract to talk to the press. And she refused. And then they made a big stink about it and they find her. And then she dropped out of the French Open, which is huge. It was one of the three or four big tournaments. And she said, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't handle this better, but I struggle with depression. And it's really, really hard for me to get interviewed right after, especially if I've lost. And now it's opened up this huge conversation about once again, how women are asked different questions, held to different standards. And it just really made me think about, is this like something that I want to try to work on with people, be a stand for? How can we change how women are are interviewed, how other people interact with us being seen, right? right? It's one thing for me to show up and be my full self being photographed between you and me, right? Because you're going to make me feel safe. And I'm going to be able to get rid of any of the, yeah, hopefully. And I'm going to be able to get rid of any of the photographs that make me look really funny and ugly. And, you know, I've gotten comfortable with those kind of things, but it's, I think when we're, we're on a high wire, like someone like that, the second best athlete, one of the best athletes in the world, second best tennis player, whatever she is. I feel like you spoke to this because I underlined this. I underlined this, Jennifer, somewhere in here. Let's see. I wish I could remember my own writing. I know. Well, it's probably good you can't, or then you'd just be a narcissist. (laughs) I call it creative amnesia. Like, oh, really? I wrote that. Are you sure? Are you sure I wrote that book? (laughs) In here. It's in here. Uh, I mean, how do we make it safe together as professionals? You know, if you're a journalist, if you're, you know, you're in the board meeting, how do we make it safe to be seen and to take those stands? And that's, I'm really curious about that because so many women are rightfully terrified to share their work publicly or. Yeah, now, you know, it's interesting because I, I feel like um, I, I went to a Tony Robbins date with Destiny Think back in 2018. And hands down, the most powerful, uh, well, there were a couple incredibly powerful moments, but two of the two of them were when he he asked everybody in the room, he was like, gentlemen, how many, there were 5,000 of us in the room and it was divided quite equally men to women. Well, it was only determined on those two genders, but that's what was there. So mm-hmm. um he asked how many guys, he was like, how many of you have felt threatened today, physically threatened in the getting here, like either on your way here or on your way home back to your hotels, like how many of you felt any sense of physical safety um, in that, you know, like maybe one, maybe one guy raised his hand. And then he asked the women, he was like, ladies, how many of you felt physically, you know, and like, 
you know, all 80%, whatever, all the hands right. go up in some form or another. Right. Like I'm thinking about the route or I'm leaving to leave earlier, or I'm going to go and not in the underground tunnel or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to take the stairs at 11 o'clock. Yeah. Night. Like whatever, right. right. Whatever it might be. And he said to the guys, he was like, it's important that you understand that women are prey mm -hmm. and they experience life through the lens and the experience of prey not as predator. And that is a very different paradigm. And when we as predator dismiss it, it's because we are not in a position of that. And I was very thankful that he acknowledged that in that way, how much impact it had, long lasting, I, whatever. But it was valuable, at least for a strong male leader to acknowledge that to the men in the room to say, hey, like this, so be because physical safety, like I have a pet peeve about um, tables that, that wobble. And I really, it took me a while to figure out what annoyed me about it. And I realized it's because if the table wobbles, I don't actually feel like it, my meal is safe, right? Like mm -hmm. I feel like it's not steady and something will tip or something will thin or something will spill. And it becomes, it's actually a matter of safety that mm -hmm. if, it, if the thing were foundational, I would feel more safe about the whatever. And I'm like, that's sort of the expanded version, right? If we don't, if we don't feel physically safe, it's going to be a lot harder to then feel confident or to to project like even even our willingness to be confident in our posture sure you know like i say to women all the time when i'm photographing them even to sit up tall like to sit up straight mm -hmm. if i sit up straight then i come forward like this and i have to be willing to have my my i have to be willing to have my breast out forward mm -hmm. in the world if i want to choose confidence in a body mm -hmm. posture for myself. I never and, thought about that. And that alone is threatening as fuck because mm -hmm. if you're someone that has a history of abuse or violence mm -hmm. or whatever, mm -hmm. or even too muchness. Right. Or wolf whistles at your boobs. That's right. That's exactly right. So just to, just to ask a woman to stand, to sit upright in her confidence immediately creates a like, yeah, but uh, I have to think about, like, I'm going to mm -hmm. have to have a relationship with that idea before mm -hmm. I can just do mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. that, that alone is like, that's a thing. It is. And it, it reminds me of an idea in the book, which is not an idea of mine. It's from other researchers, but I think I might've changed the name of it a little bit, but your emotional immune system mm -hmm. and, and boys and girls, but we all have this men and women. And, and it's just like our physical immune system. When something feels that it's going to leave us undefended we go away from it. We distract ourselves. We procrastinate. We get into something that feels more confident, and we have. We're always going to have that emotional immune system. It's part of what we use in that in that moment of like, do I go in the tunnel? Do I go in the stairs? Do I go on the elevator? But it's also if we don't work with it, it makes our lives too small, and we'll right. never sit up straight in the photo shoot. Yeah, but I also think that over the years, I've I think that that women are we are often our worst enemy to ourselves as a collective about being seen because mm. it is really often not in terms of judgment like in terms of the judgment we feel about well I don't know if I look good enough I don't know if my hair is right I don't know if I picked the right outfit I don't know if I what should I get my nails done what if they can see like we have concerns about that that men don't always bring to the table in the same way, right? Like I think they very rarely bring it to the table. I know that they that 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 I should say that I know that eating disorders have risen dramatically in male population, and not to downplay men suffering at all, but we have internalized a, 
an incredibly complex set of rules about what we're supposed to do. Like my husband shaves his legs only if he's going to put the tape on for, because because he's got a running injury or something. (laughs) I still shave my legs, right? Right. Because it's totally, it's completely cultural. It's really true. It's really true. Yeah. And how, and how do we shift those things when it comes to our mental health and about moving forward? Like I think about all of the people who are now wanting to emerge, right? Whether it's because of the vaccinations or just the state we're in now, like people are ready to kind of come back. But I think to what, like, I don't think that people have a real clear sense of like, well, they're emerging from these old ways of being, but in, but how, right? Because I like, I talk to some people who feel very excited about the future and they feel really ready to sort of be like released, like almost like the kids on the last day of school. Like they're mm-hmm. so, ex- right. Like they're so excited to like bust through the doors and like it's summer on life. And that's so exciting. But I know there's other people who feel like their life really just got completely derailed, debunked, turned inside out. And it's even harder, I think, to watch people be busting through the doors of excitement to something when your own life just really got kicked to the curb or, you know, like I know someone who lost both of her parents in this past year. And like, you're not busting out of life excited about what's next without your parents in that way, you know, and like really honoring the both and of where we all are. Like, it's not just about, are we all excited about what's next? It's like, how do we be with what's here with each other and reflect what's here? And also how do we inspire what's, how to move forward? Yeah, I think there are a lot of people right now in, in liminal space that really are in this, where, what I wrote this book for, as, as a roadmap for that space. Like, how do you stay without making a plan? You know, and I think for people who are ready to bust out, yay, bust. And for people who aren't, I mean, we may have to kind of turn off social media for a while or turn away from the bust out energy if we're not feeling that or if we're grieving because we lost someone in the last year that we couldn't be with or we lost someone to COVID or, you know, illness and other illnesses. And that liminal space requires us to find desire again. And it takes time. And what our brains want to do and what our culture wants to do is say, where are you going? Decide where you're going, make a plan and make sure, like you said a moment ago, that it's going to be totally linear and you're going to arrive and it's all going to work. But I promise you, when I wrote that memoir and looked at my life, I realized that every time I short-circuited the liminal process, every time I short-circuited letting myself be in the unknown, find desire again, experiment, grow my emotional immune system, my life got smaller. And we who you are in this moment of not knowing is going to become someone different. And if you try to make the plan now, it's a plan that will be too small for who you're going to become. Yeah. What do you say to the people who live in that tricky place of like not trusting themselves to know that they, that, you know, that place where you feel like you should be pushing where you're like, well, am I not, Mm. am I, should I be pushing and I'm just being lazy or I'm being chicken shit, but I actually, the answer is to be pushing harder to get myself to the, if I could just get myself to that next thing versus, uh, to just be with it. And like, how do you say to the women who live in that? Cause that, I think that's a really difficult place. It is a difficult place. And it does require a lot of discernment. It also requires a lot of self-trust. 
And the culture in general does not foster self-trust. Our culture, whether it's online business world or celebrities or influencers or, you know, buy myself help book with the answers. My book doesn't have any answers. Then, you know, then all of that conditions us. Our education system in general conditions us to look outside of ourselves. Somebody tells us what to do and then I do it. So we have to first start developing our own self-trust and the practice of saying, what do I think is going on here? How do we do that, Jen? Well, I think you have to find the ways that work for you. Is it taking yourself for a walk and asking? Movement that isn't uh, movement like a brisk walk, but not a run is incredibly good for your cognition so that it will help you think. Journaling is incredibly good to bring on your executive function so that you can bring in other parts of your brain, basically, to help you maybe see things. Great questions that you might find, for example, in the guided journal that I created called Get Your Bother On, that might help, or questions that you find online, uh, questions from a coach, a really good therapeutic relationship. I've had that kind of self-growth through being in peer groups that we stayed together for a long time and really got to know each other so we could call each other out. Not to say you're doing it, but you know what, I'm going to stop you right there and, and say that I call, I sniff something that's not quite right. So creating some structures and practices, knowing you're, it's not about being perfect or doing them every day, but it's about, okay, first I have to develop a relationship to myself. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing I would say, are you making clear promises to yourself? There's an idea in the book called conditions of enoughness. Mm. And it's really about how to make clear promises to yourself. Are you making clear promises? And if you are, are you keeping them? Mm -hmm. Because that's a real indicator. Like, are you making inflated promises? Are you making too many promises? Are you living in a fantasy life? Are you pretending you're not human? That's going to erode your self-trust. And it's also telling you something about what's not working. Or are you making no promises and no progress at all? You're not even experimenting because action confuses fear. Mm -hmm. Motivation comes after action. It doesn't come before ever, ever, ever. I mean, maybe occasionally because we just don't realize that we're actually moving already. <laughs> so are you making and keeping clear promises? So you say, oh, I said I would make those three calls or I said I would write that 500 words and three times this week. And I did. Huh. Interesting. Now, what do I know? Because when we're in action, then we can reflect again on the walk and the journal and the therapeutic moment with some with with ourselves to say hey so now I did that how do I feel how was that but if there's no there there there's no promises then how do you what are you measuring right you have nothing to reflect upon really exactly you, you don't really right. you don't really get the litmus test of how am I doing me because you're not doing anything to do you in a container of to see like how do, <laughs> yeah, what, that's how, how does how does my blue dye disintegrate in this water. I don't know. Cause I never hopped in the cup. Right. right exactly. And how you, you just said something brilliant, which is how do I do me? Mm -hmm. And this is another way we develop self-trust and we get through these wonky moments. And I'm in a little bit of a moment like this right now. I kind of hit a period about a month ago was really languishing and really like I would keep, we kept coming up with ideas and, and starting to launch programs and just, and then me going, no, I don't want to no, do it. 
which I never do, or I shouldn't say never, but very rare. It was a really weird last year for me, as it was for most of us. And and then about a month ago, I turned into the happiest person on the planet for no good reason. Just like, oh my God, I'm so in love with life. I'm so in love with spring. I'm so in love with my husband. And not so in love with working hard. And I don't know whether it's a transition in life or what's happening, but my ambition is just kind of gone, huh. But I almost, so I, I think this pandemic though, I think this time we've all been in is sort of, I don't know, it's all. There's something to be said for living living through something. I want to be really careful of this because it, it really was horrendous. For people, it was horrendous for. I don't want to minimize that from my own experience. People who it's still horrendous for around right, the world. Right, agreed, right. Um, I just felt like it allowed me to go into darkness, into shame places, into hard, mm. into, into hard things, but with a willingness to, to notice them and to... Uh, just see them objectively, like get to know them as opposed to being involved with it. You know, mm, interesting. To, um, because when I was involved with it, I thought it was pretty sure it was going to sink me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, or that it is you. Yeah, right. It was like the involvement, like the involvement with it was almost too problematic. And and a little bit of distance could help help me see yeah. it a little. The witness consciousness. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What I was going to ask you, Jen, in the in the time that you wrote Why Bother, like what kind of epiphanies and revelations, like what, what things came like after you wrote it, what things have you been like, oh, if I had like, if I could put in that other like last chapter, if I could add a digital chapter to it now, like, is there, is there anything that you feel like you've come to understand or know since then that you're like, you know, this was also super impactful? You know, I think it's in the book. It's the very beginning, but I understand it more now, which is that how, inevitable and sometimes almost constant this question is of why bother and how it can come through in an afternoon and you can be like yeah why bother to keep working let's go see our friend or let's go walk the dog or let's go take a nap yeah or it comes along and you're like huh why are you here so I think that I think I would maybe add like and I thought about doing this but I don't know why I didn't I don't remember now but almost like it's almost like it can be a daily inquiry Mm -hmm. Right. And, and a kind of a way that you're to go back to your question of, am I doing my stuff or am I not doing my stuff? You know, where, where is the energy and what's fresh? And then if it's not fresh and there's no energy there, is there a story I'm believing about why bother to do this? Cause no one's going to care. Or I've tried in the past and been disappointed. And now I'm always, I'm a, always a fan of inquiry. So me too. I feel like curiosity is the answer more than mm -hmm. the answer ever is, mm -hmm. right? Because it always leads me to some other way of understanding how I'm doing what I'm doing, whether or not what I'm doing is actually what I want to be doing, whether mm -hmm. it's something I'm choosing to do or feeling like I'm li I'm choosing out of some old obligation or, or an idea Duty. of what you expect of me that you never mm -hmm. even said to me, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like all the, all the various yeah. things. Yeah. I think the other thing that I might have added more of, and again, it's in there some, is that I'm just such not a believer in self-improvement. I used years ago, I used to do, I used to do, I think it was like a week-long celebration or something. It's called freedom from self-improvement. And it's it's not that there's not things that we always want to be changed and growing. I mean, that's that's the beauty of being alive. I think that's our purpose, is just to just grow and, and be here and be fully ourselves. And, and just share that and give as much as we can. But 
that idea there's something wrong with me. And I think sometimes that the idea that if I could just arrive, if I could just fix it, if I could just never do that again, that alone keeps us in my bother. Yeah, and I think that for me, that's a lot about people um, not creating containers as a culture to give people the opportunity to speak their whole truth, mm. right? Like we create opportunities for people to show up compartmentalized, right? But uh, whether really or by rules, like you get to say this, but not in front of your employees. You get mm. to you get to admit that, but not to your wife. You get to say that, but never in front of the children, right? right? Like there's there's always ways where we have to hide, or or we can be asked to tuck parts of ourselves into places. So where where do we get to go and be kind of the whole self? The whole self. Even just for, right, even just for ourselves. To, even if we just wanted to go into a quiet room alone and kind of like put the. I mean, we talk about mind mapping in business. It's like yeah, but where do you go and throw your whole self at the wall and be like, let me let me think about this. Like maybe I want to move this part here. Maybe I want to. You know? And that self-acceptance of all those parts too is not something that, I mean, it's definitely gaining traction and, and acceptance. It was one of the things, you know, there's so much about social media that is, has really been disastrous for our world. But the one thing that I do think, I'm sure there's more than one thing that I think, but the one thing that I think has been good is normalizing mental health challenges. Right. And normalizing humanity you know and that's one of the nice things about the pandemic i mean to see famous people doing their tv show out of their basement you know it just kind of took some of the mystique and projection at least briefly out of some of our celebrity culture i feel like it allowed us a sense of humanity Mm -hmm. you know because i think that um my dad was a methodist minister like not like in like the footloose dad kind of way but in a (laughs) little more relatable but there were rules, you know, there were, there were rules of like how to operate. And there were, uh, there were sort of truths that I always felt like I got to see behind the scenes and be like, yeah, but I know you say it's like that, but it's actually not always like that. And I feel like I've, I've lived my life for better or worse in states of total confusion and betrayal of like what's really happening. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because I feel like I can see uh, multiple truths at the same time. And sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes that can be quite weird when someone is denying a truth that I can see. Right. And that yeah. has a lot to do with that self-trust, but, um, I, I think helping people like learn, like, how do we, how do we help people be in a space where they can recognize the stuff that's happening around them and still come home to this trusting in themselves where it's not because our dad taught us this way or the rules of a, of a church taught us this or, or the teacher taught us this, but it comes back to us relying on, on our own wisdom and and our own wisdom and and offering ourselves tremendous self-compassion when we trust ourselves to do something or choose someone or do a particular project or say a certain thing in a meeting. And it, and it doesn't go well. Because a lot of us think self-trust is predicated on everything working out. Like I see that a lot. Like, right. well, I listened to my intuition and it didn't work. It's like, but that's but, but your intuition is not mystical. Your intuition is the is is your unconscious, not in a Jungian sense, but in not in your working memory. Everything that is coming into you, everything you have learned in your whole life, and it's stored in there, and it your body picks up on it and starts to act on it. And then you make up a story with your mind after the fact. That's what's actually working, that's what's actually happening. But your what comes up and how you act on the story you make and the outcome is not always going to be perfect, but that doesn't mean you can't trust yourself. The question is: do you have compassion for yourself when it didn't go well? And then 
Are you developing the practices so that you know what your values are? So you know what your ethics are? Mm. Or are you looking constantly outside of yourself to someone else? Is there anybody home yeah. to have to trust? Right. <laughs> well, I think like there's so much more about life. Like one of the things that I, I wish I had taught my children this, but I honestly didn't really know it until more recently is like, you call it why bother. Some people call it enrollment. Some people call it engagement. Like there's a, there's a quality of being human where we are just asked to engage ourselves in our own next thing, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's our next moment, our next way of being, getting on the school bus, making the breakfast, making the bed, like being at peace, choosing whatever, like this idea that we really are responsible for re-engaging and recommitting to what we care about and therefore is a real big reason to have significant intentionality about what we care about, right? Yeah. Be because if somebody had said to me when I was little, hey, listen, you're gonna, your job in this life is really going to be to get yourself on board over and over and over again with what you care about and how you want to feel about it. That would have been really flipping helpful in kindergarten. They could be like, listen, you're going to get to choose all the things you want to do. And you're going to get to choose how you want to feel about it. Because at the end of the day, if you don't do those things, your life could really shit the bed. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Thanks. That is, that's really true. There, That's another level of why I bother that I guess is implied in the book, but maybe not clearly stated, which is you do have to keep choosing life. Yeah. And I know as a person, like, you know, I spent a lot of my life dealing with suicidal ideation and, mm -hmm. and, and depression. Um, not so much now, but it was a, a, a pretty significant part of my life. And I only recently kind of connected the dots that number one, that was a very righteous part of my survivorship that mm -hmm. kept me kind of connected to that. And also that, um, that, that depression is also resignation, right? It is, yes, it it can is be. Yeah. For, for me, it really was a lot of like, like truly why bother? Like, mm -hmm. why, mm -hmm. like why bother? Mm -hmm. And, and when I didn't have my own answer to that, I could not get myself back on the horse of give a shit. Cause I mm -hmm. didn't know why I should give a shit or even really understand that the only way I was going to give a shit was by, by stumbling in, not into like finding what's next and getting <laughs> on the biggest horse I can find. Cause if I could just get on a horse, like, no, but to really tiny, find the tiny breadcrumbs, yes. of like, of like the tiny bits of like why I care. And what do I care yes. about? Nothing. That's right. Fine. Well, then what do I care about this? What, what tiny thing can I care about? Yes. That, that is true for me that I do. You know, it's almost like we used to teach kids in, um, in nature education about like owl eyes and deer ears, where you're really trying to get them to come into a state of peripheral awareness, mm -hmm. right? Where it's not so focused, it's mm -hmm. this periphery. And I feel like my spirit has asked me to come into my periphery, my mental health, my spirit asked me to come step into that sort of broader awareness in order to connect to some sense of desire. When, uh, when, my, when my motive that, when my momentum already has me in a state of resignation. Yes. And, and that goes back to that, what I was saying about being in liminal space, because when we're in liminal space, we're like, okay, it's, it got to, desire's got to be big. It's got to be clear. I got to get on that force. But no, those are the stories and the beliefs that are going to keep you stuck. It's, it's me walking across my little deck to come out to my office today. And my, the little flowers I planted are so pretty right now. Right. Like, Wow. But it seems so counterintuitive, right? That like 
the way forward is to stop and smell the flowers. Yeah, or to be, you know, to savor your coffee. The science is really true, really strong at savoring things is going to help your mood. But, or to go, oh, you know, I'm finding myself curious about seed catalogs. Oh, well, what would I ever do with seed catalogs? And seed catalogs are no reason to bother. It's like, well, you're curious about seed catalogs. So let's just let that take some action on that and see where it takes you. But we, 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 we either believe the story of resignation and when we're in de depression, or we believe that it's more, you know, we believe so many different things. It's not worth it. I can't do it. We project, oh my God, so many of my clients. If I have this idea and I pursue it and it's successful, I'm going to be so popular and so in demand and so famous and exhausted and my life's not going to work. And I'm just like, why don't we just Right, write a blog pages. post yeah exactly <laughs> why don't we just like reel it back for a minute <laughs> yeah but people don't often speak about the fear of success that come you know the fear of what might happen if it does work but it's because because it's like look that goes right back to like but what happens if i am seen there's a right. real right like because if i'm successful then i'm going to be seen and what can happen to my life if that happens but you're actually we're not afraid of success we're afraid of being undefended. We're afraid of being Naomi Osaka, who is one of the most successful female athletes in the world, who is suddenly now undefended in front of the press and the um, the whatever the, the Grand Slam people. Yeah. That's what we're afraid of. That's what we have to learn to make ourselves feel safe and to keep expanding that sense of how will we, how will we defend ourselves? Who will support us? How will we support ourselves? And kind of dropping those stories. I'm afraid of change. I'm afraid of success. I'm afraid of failure. You're really not. You're afraid of that moment of being undefended mm -hmm. and you can learn to navigate that. Yeah. And I think that becomes one of those like competent confidence things, like mm -hmm. you really got to do it enough to feel and you've got it and you've got to reflect like we were talking about earlier you've got to have practices that say <laughs> i was um i was interviewing a couple of screenwriters for my podcast and one of them said yeah and she's gone on to be nominated for an academy award for inside out i believe or for soul for one of the pixar films and she was going to a meeting and she was like okay i i i can't i can't i can't go to the meeting i can't go i'm just i'm I mean, I don't have to go in. I can just get in the car and leave. And she told herself, we're going to go. We're not going to die. We're not going to die. And then all the way in the drive home, we didn't die. Do you see we didn't die? And that's the reflection that our brains need and our emotional immune system needs. You didn't die. Did you see you didn't die? Well, I think we or have a, whatever. We have, I think we have a buy-in that our that if we that our curiosity is as is as hell bent on our result or the outcome as we are, but it isn't. Our That's curiosity, so right? Like our curiosity, like we think our curiosity is there in service of this pursuit to get to something. And our mm -hmm. curiosity is like, no, nah, I'm not actually like, right. I'm not I, just like kids aren't here to make us feel better. Like, no, they're like, it's not here. Our curiosity is here to just serve that. Like it is its own master. Exactly. Just like desire is not here so that you, oh, I desire to write suddenly becomes, I desire to write a book and I desire to write a bestseller list. And, and I'm not saying that those things don't come through, sure. but the, the actual experience is, oh, I desire to spend time with these characters or I desire to develop these ideas. And then it may become like, I like to make the distinction between desire and goals. 
Yeah. Right. Goals may be something you're like, I'm going to work really hard to get this publishing deal, or I'm going to work really hard to sell this many copies. Great. But that's not you. And that's not desire. And desire is like, what do we want to learn next? Yeah. 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 It's really, it's really wonder and all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And wonder opens the door to desire. Yeah. So powerful. So powerful. I'm so grateful that you do what you do in the world, Jim. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I really mean that. I think, you know, one of the bravest things I think we can all do is be brave enough to really acknowledge what we're here for, right? And it might be for this moment. It might not Mm -hmm. be, it's like these things may not be a forever thing, but I think if we're brave enough in any moment to acknowledge what the truth of now is, then like, then we share that with other people and give each other permission to do that. And then the whole world is full of people who are actually doing something in this moment that feels really aligned with who they are. And that just feels far better than a world of everybody trying to step on each other to get to somewhere. Right. Or manipulate something for some nefarious end thinking have, of U.S. politics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I have photographed a lot of people in my life that have passed away and, and I guarantee when I took their picture, that was not on the plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, eventually, of course, but like they were not mapping it into their paradigm that that was the result they were doing all this for, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Is there anything else that you want to say or that you feel like is really important to who you are and the work you do, or really, I guess, even more about like when you look as a seer and you look at what is happening for the people right now and what they're wanting in terms of being somewhere that feels better. I think people are wanting a great, and I may be completely projecting here, but I think people are wanting a great sense of What's the word? I don't know if I want to say fun, enjoyment, pleasure. You know, for those of us who are on the other side and are vaccinated, and for the rest of the people listening who might be in countries that aren't, which is sadly so much of the world, I think to know that the that they're not forgotten, you know, that we're just not like as you said, bolting out the doors of school and going, okay, bye everybody else, you'll get here eventually. So I think there's a way that I feel like we're wanting so much to take in beauty and to be grateful and to be alive and to really embrace that and make time for that. And at the same time, we wanna, you know, just hold the, the I see you and if you're still suffering and your country is falling apart. Thank you, that's really beautiful. Yeah, I know you were really generous to offer the first um, chapter of your book as a freebie for people. So I'm going to add a link for them to find that. Um, where else can people find you, Jen? Where do you like people to seek you out? And yeah, I always, you, jenniferloudon.com, and that's where you can get the free chapter of, of the book. And we have a podcast, Create Out Loud, and I interview people about the creative life, the nitty gritty of the creative life, all kinds of creators. And yeah, I tend to be on Instagram a little bit. Uh-huh. I know it's hard to choose where to be, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I mean, I like the conversation I have on Twitter. I like the conversation I have on Instagram. Most of the time, I don't like the conversation I have on Facebook. So I disappear from that for periods of time. Today was a perfect example. I was said, you know, I get so irritated about men who have productivity advice because it so rarely fits women's lives women's lives often involving caregiving, caretaking, interruptions. 
And I, I've thought about this, you know, probably for 20 years or more, ever since I read Composing a Life by uh, Mary Catherine Bateson. And so all the women are like, yes, yes, it's so true. Oh my God, what, what are we gonna? And this man comes in and dares to come in and say, well, I just think it's about women in resentment. <laughs> I'm like, well, buddy, you're gonna get eaten alive. <laughs> I'm not even gonna say anything. So yeah, anyway. Very hard because we just, you know, I'm a mom of two boys and, mm. I, and I'm a single mom of two boys. Their dad's involved in their life, you know, but, um, but my experience of being their mother has been on my own with them. And so mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing to raise um, a gender I am not. Through, yeah, I didn't right? do that. I have a stepson, but he came in my life when he was 11. His mom's very present. Yeah. And so I was more of an aunt to him. Yeah. And I didn't get a real strong sense of raising a boy. And, and my, my biological child was a girl. Yeah, it was really, it was, there were a lot of really beautiful and unexpected and also some really torturous. Like when they got to high school, neither one of them had any, neither one of them was, was willing to, to attempt to have a girlfriend because they were so terrified mm. that, that a girl would say for any number of reasons that they did something to her that they didn't do. They oh, were, God. they were more, they were more afraid of being falsely accused of something than they were interested in even having a girlfriend. They were like, I would love one, but I will not. Uh, wow. Because they were terrified, like terrified, like three o'clock in the morning, up all night, crying conversations about these things. And I was like, what happened? Like, wait a second, because that's not the paradigm. You know, I grew up in the female paradigm of that. So it's an interesting, it's been yeah. a very interesting both and to consider all, all these different, different sides. Yeah. And the way, that. and the way that sensitive men have been impacted with the culture changes that with, with the, with the cost of toxic max masculinity. Right. It's a really, yeah, it doesn't just, it just does right. it, it impacts all of us. Yeah, it really does. It's been, it's been an interesting thing to um, ask myself to open my eyes to from a, different, mm -hmm. from, mm -hmm. a, from a different way. And it can be quite triggering in all the conversations and debates about what they believe and what they don't believe and mm -hmm. it's true or not. Uh, but I think that it's important to have those conversations as much as we can, because I think, I think I know a lot of, I have felt taken down by women. I have felt taken down by men in different ways, mm -hmm. and, right? Like I, it doesn't I really, have to be gendered. No, like I really can say that it is, it is not my guy friends that I would ever worry about picking up the phone and having them judge me for things that my girlfriends would judge, not my mm -hmm. close girlfriends, but women, I, women will judge me for things that a man never would. And, yeah. a, and, and a man would try to overpower me and shame me into something that's that most women never would. Mm -hmm. Right. Like mm -hmm. it's very, we have, we have very different tactics. That's mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's true. That's a lot. It's a lot to wade through in these times, but I think it's as often as it's messy and nobody fits into any bucket or box that we're having these conversations yeah, and, it's like why Ram Dass wrote the book in the first place. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, like this many years later, really be here now is still some of the best advice one can offer. Yep. Yeah. What's sure. helping? What's helping you right now? Get your bother on as you as you create whatever's coming down the pike and what you're no, playing with. Yeah, it's that's a great question. Part of it is really examining how I work. I have a fair amount 
pretty strong learning disabilities. I guess I could call myself neurodivergent now. I don't know what the right words are, but my brain doesn't work like yeah. a lot of people's brains. And I also am somebody who likes to make things really fast and that can be great and can be really problematic. So I'm trying to work really hard on my own systems so that I can create with more fluidity. I'm trying to learn to do less um, and have less days when it's five or six o'clock and I'm, I've been here since six o'clock in the morning. I mean, with breaks and exercise and eating sure. and I don't just sit here the whole time. My Fitbit won't let me and um, <laughs> my dogs won't let me. And, but I feel that pressure. So I'm really working on what is, yeah, I'm working on deep questions of how I work. Hmm. Um, because I think that's for me very much tied to keeping getting my bother on <laughs> yeah that's wow. really powerful well thanks jen i really appreciate you taking this time and my pleasure feeling willing to share it with people it's really this so inspiring this is really like you know when my i be right before the pan about nine months before the pandemic happened i had just gone all in on my dream student photography studio oh. It was like the most beautiful New York style brick, white brick loft, high ceilings. I had just started hosting these incredible, like sort of Jeffersonian style connected dinners because my dream was to really pivot from the photography into more like workshopping and conversations mm -hmm. and, and this more of this work. And it was so beautiful. And then the pandemic, you know, and then I really had to decide like early enough on without a lot of information. And it was an interesting intersection of like, how do I trust myself in a moment when I don't have the answers to what's right? Next? I don't. And I don't know in two months, this could be fine. And I could feel like the world's biggest loser for having shut the doors on, like for not having mm -hmm. faith in this, or I could be so grateful that I did. And it was a really challenging decision. And I really, I just want to honor you and respect you so much because your book truly, like, as I sat here in a pile of my, like, I, I had a one, one bedroom apartment's worth of a studio land in my fully furnished house. Like, I don't have an extra wing for, you know, <laughs> like, just in case I might shit the bed with an idea, we'll just move it all to that wing of the house. And, and, and really being saddled with, with the remnants of this vision. Sure. And like, like my why bother led me to this dream that then ended up in disarray in my living room. And I was mm. like, I don't have any idea how to bother. Like, I don't actually yeah. even know where to put anything or, yes. and I don't know how to confront the physical stuff of my dismantled dream on any level, like, yeah, right. It was like, oh my God. And so, and that's really, liminal space too, right? And liminal space can sound so romantic. It's not. <laughs> no, it's, and it, and it really was studio not in your house. No, and it was, you know, like it, I am going to interview Charlie Gilkey pretty soon, oh. uh, also who we both love and adore. But Charlie Gilkey wasn't going to get me through that. Mm -hmm. right? right. Like I use his daily things every day and I love them. I'd be lost without them but I couldn't fill in a daily productivity sheet to get me through that. Exactly. And so I really super can't thank you enough for writing this because your subconscious, your bother wrote it for me. And I really appreciate it when it mattered. I, I appreciate that so much. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Keep doing what you do, please. In okay. whatever way that looks. Right, whatever way comes next. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Robin Ivy podcast. I want to thank you for spending this time together today. And if you enjoyed this episode and haven't done so already, please subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, leave me a review. This gets more listeners like you and I to hear the messages my guests share. That way
would mean so much to me. Last thing, the thoughts and views of each of my guests does not reflect my own personal viewpoints or opinions on topics discussed. This podcast is an open forum for dialogue, kindness, and insightful expression. And this often means looking at life through a new lens. I hope you love today's episode and invite you to join me once again at the table on the Robin Ivy Podcast.